I'm Shereen Bajek, and this is Starting Out. Digiday's newest podcast where I take the personal route with the biggest movers and shakers in the marketing industry to find out their stories, how they became the leaders they are today, and what's their special power that makes their craft so remarkable. Inside the mind and heart of Shalina Janmohamed, Vice President at ad agency Ogilvy Noor, the shop's Islamic consultancy that wants to remind brands about the power of the Muslim consumer. Shalina's current role seems like she was almost destined for it. And the story began in 2005, right after the London bombings. Suddenly, at that moment, it almost felt like someone had painted an X on the back of my scarf and I was carrying that wherever I went. After September 11th and the London attacks, Shalina did feel like her identity and her headscarf demanded explanations from people around her. She felt like she was being labeled, and she had no mentors or anyone who she could look to. But she needed an outlet to tell her story. So it started with a blog. So I would be watching the news, I would be reading the newspapers, and the kind of people that were interviewed from a Muslim background or the kind of stories that were told just didn't connects at all with my experience they seem to choose the worst people to talk about it people who would come have extreme views or you know sympathize with terrorists um because i don't know that made good news as opposed to being informative and helping our social conversations whereas all the people that i spoke to didn't feel like the kind of spokespeople and news that we saw on our tvs And I just felt compelled that somebody had to talk about this experience that was happy and confident in being British, Western, European, Muslim, female. So I was just chatting very easily to the producer at BBC's Newsnight programme, which is the flagship news analysis programme in the UK. And they wanted to talk about a particular issue that had happened in the press and that I'd written about. And so I was just chatting very easily to the producer. And in the middle of the conversation, he said to me, do you want to come in on Newsnight? And I'd never been on TV. (laughs) Um, And I kind of went, no, thanks. No, not really. What made you say no? this is the t- this is the UK's flagship news program. Yes. I mean, if you're going to have news a TV night. debut, <laughs> <laughs> then, um, you know, th- th- this is huge. And, it's huge. Um, That's why I'm surprised you was, said no. <laughs> I'd only been writing a blog for a while. You know, I was kind of putting my thoughts into the ether. And somehow he managed to persuade me to do it. And they were brilliant. They asked um, Kirsty Walk, who was... Uh, chairing it that evening to come in and she spoke to me and I sat at the table and the moment I realized that there was something I had to say was when I looked back at the footage and they had put Mm -hmm. the title card with my name and my blog on it and I think at that point things started to change and I started to see myself in a different way that there was something publicly that I had to say, and that wasn't being said because I was a total newbie to media and they had put me on the flagship show, which to me said that there weren't people talking about the things that I wanted to say. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, people would start sharing my articles, um, got awards for my blog, and people would write to me and say, can you write a book about what it means to be Muslim? Um, And I think part of that was because there was insight, but also 
my writing is quite light of touch. You know, it's quite accessible. I don't write in long words. <laughs> um, so and I can I can see it. I, I can see the worries people have, whether they're Muslim or not Muslim, and the general kind of human condition that we're all struggling with. So there was a wide appeal to it, I think. And people would say, can you write back about being Muslim? And the response I had is something I think a lot of us have when we're in public, which is, well, I don't really have anything to say. Mm. Like, I don't live a very exciting life. I go to the office and then I come home and then I go out with my friends. And at that point, you know, I'm quite might like to get married or you know fall in love and have my happily ever after what am I going to write about and I remember looking at the books that were available about Muslims and I looked at them all and I just thought you know where is my story in this where you know who's telling my story and, and I guess looking back on the mm-hmm. the journey and that moment that's almost like the the stories that we tell in our industry it's like where is the fresh story where is the insight Mm-hmm. And so I decided at that moment that somebody had to tell my story and nobody else seemed to be doing it. So I would have to do it. And I thought long and hard about what kind of story I wanted to write. And in a way, the natural thing would have been to write about not being a terrorist. But again, you know, it, it's funny how now I work in this industry, I can look back and see how I took all the right steps to develop a brand and to develop a story. <laughs> because I look back and I say, well, I, I thought to myself, you don't counter the story by entrenching it. You don't just tell the opposite of the story because that doesn't change the narrative. And so I wrote a book about something that was really on my mind, which was the subject of love. Hmm. And, uh, and, you know, I had, you know, I come from an Asian background. So looking to get married is like a big thing. <laughs> when you're a, you're a girl and you're born, that is your entire life purpose. You, you were writing a book about being Muslim, something that affects, you know, many people that are many people are Muslim and many people aren't Muslim, but you picked a topic that that everybody could identify with. Everybody can knows about love and trying to find love and whatever stage of life they're at, wherever their backgrounds are, whatever you know, personal things they're feeling or their fates or their families. And that's exactly what I wanted. I wanted somebody to pick up the book and read it because they were in, it was the question that intrigued so many of us, which is, you know, how did you fall in love or how did you get married? How did you find the person you're with? And I wanted it to feel like that was the story. And I happen to be Muslim and I happen to have this different heritage and I happen to have some experiences that maybe you haven't heard of before that you might not have thought of before. And I think that worked. The problem was getting publishers to understand that, to understand why it was so exciting to tell a Muslim woman's story, how a story could be positive. I, I got lots of rejections of people saying things like, um, you know, this is a great story, but we don't know who would buy this. And I and I would say, well, nobody's told this story before. You have all these other um books about muslims but this story hasn't been told so publish it and they were like we don't understand a positive story about muslim women Mm. and i would like we're not all terrorists and you know i I had some responses to say uh some responses saying it's really great you're going to talk about muslim women being oppressed and i'm like did you even get past your own prejudices when when you read the proposal that i sent to you did you ever feel like you were fighting this like one woman battle? Just, I mean, going out and trying to educate, you know, all these different types of people. I mean, was there ever a point at which you felt, 
gosh, I'm just tired. <laughs> I felt that then and sometimes I feel it now. Um, but if there's anything we learn about communications is you just have to keep going. You have to keep changing one person's view at a time. And actually, I took very much the approach that, um, you know, you everybody has their own opinion. This is my story. You know, this is my personal story. These are my views. You can agree, you can disagree, but it would be great if you understood what it's like to stand in my shoes. And that was very much the reason that I chose to write a memoir. You can't argue with a memoir. It's somebody's experience. (laughs) The book is, it's a sort of humorous search for love in the romantic sense, but also about finding our place in the world and on the way kind of explaining what it means to live as a Muslim woman. And It was so fascinating, the development of the idea, but also things like the cover. So the cover is, um, it's a woman, it's all in pink and purple, and it has a woman in a headscarf. She's driving a sports car. Her scarf is sort of waving in the background. It's got these kind of little pink hearts with star Islamic arabesques. And of course, it's to the London skyline, as you would expect. (laughs) I wouldn't expect any less. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, and... And the image itself was designed to be quite striking, to be different to the kind of imagery that people saw around the world. And even the cover of the book, let alone the book itself, is designed to act as an intervention. And this was published in 2009. So this is really before the emergence of the young Muslim Generation M that we're that I work with now. So this was really a very early image that was completely different for the from the kind of black cloaked women that came up page after page if you did Google image searches at that time. And I have those records still where you would put Muslim women in and you would just get 10 or 15 pages of women dressed in black because the idea that a Muslim woman would think or look different or have something to say just wasn't something that had emerged into public consciousness. I mean, that stereotype still continues, but Mm -hmm. we have a lot of Muslim women changing that. So the image and the book were designed as an intervention in the public space, but actually changed my own life quite dramatically. Tell me a little bit about um, growing up as a kid, you know, what what things stand out to you um, as part of your upbringing as literally a child? So I come from quite a small family, just two. My older sibling was much older than me. It's like against the stereotype right at the beginning, right? Like people just expect, oh, as uh, somebody of Asian background, um, you're going to have this giant family because they've seen it in the (laughs) movies and they've seen it in, um, they've seen it everywhere. Like, oh, you're probably going to have this giant family and an arranged marriage and all of these things are about, are all going to happen this way. You're already going against that stereotype. Well, my parents have a very typical immigrant story. Yeah. They turned up in London, you know, they had their suitcases, they had 75 pounds, mm-hmm. and they set up their life here. Um, but one of the things that really stands out for me in my childhood is how my father was so insistent on a good education, mm-hmm. and in particular, how he was incredibly firm that I, as a girl, should have the best possible education and have all the life skills possible Mm -hmm. to support me whatever happened in my life. So he was firmly of the view that, you know, I wasn't expected to go to school and then kind of get married and lead what we might see as a typically submissive housewife life. Mm -hmm. He was very clear that, you know, I should get skills, I should be able to earn money, I should be able to look after myself. Mm -hmm. 
And that is something that has really spurred me on is like my father being so clear that a woman can do anything that she wants to and should be prepared to do anything. And I think if, if anyone has been more proud of my achievements, it's him. So my, my second book was actually dedicated to him because, you know, I always have his voice in the back of my head to encourage me to keep going and, and do more. Well, when I grew up in London, it was a time where the idea of multiculturalism and taking pride in lots of different backgrounds was actually just starting to come to the fore. So I remember as a child feeling quite embarrassed of some of my heritages, like wearing henna or eating curry. But when I got to university, it felt like a whole different world that I could express who I was, that actually the part of me that started to make sense to bring all these different parts of my heritage together was my Muslim identity. And then, of course, September the 11th happened. And I really felt suddenly for a moment, despite living in this fantastic city that's very global and very international, that people were staring at me for being Muslim, that somehow I wasn't welcome or that I really needed to justify my position in, in London, in the world. Well, what were you doing at the time? Where were you working? And when you say sort of you started feeling this way that you had to almost justify, you know, oh, for the first time in your life, like who you were as a British Muslim, as a British Muslim woman too, um, what did that actually mean? I mean, were there instances that you remember? Were there were there points at which you said, why am I suddenly doing this? I remember the exact moment that the footage of 9-11 was being broadcast because I was at the office um, and I was working for a global company with people who were very open-minded and very global. And we went down to watch the TV and we saw that horrible moment where the airplanes went into the buildings. And I remember thinking on the way home, like, were people going to be staring at me because I wear a headscarf? And I had arranged to meet with some of my friends the next evening um, to get together young Muslim women who were making their way in the corporate world. And we actually had a long discussion about whether we should meet or not, hmm. because would it be safe? Would we be targeted? Um, and in the end, we decided because, you know, we didn't want that to shape who we were and mm -hmm. being kind of tough Londoners that we would meet because we didn't want that to stop us. But it did feel very scary. I, despite, you know, people looking at you in funny ways or you feeling embarrassed about certain parts of your culture, which, of course, in hindsight, I wonder why I did. But I, I understand as a child why I experienced that. Right. It was really at that moment that I felt like there was a problem of belonging. Now, whether that problem was me feeling whether I should belong or me projecting that other people felt I shouldn't be there. Mm -hmm. That's a complicated question, but it just felt for a moment like I was hovering over my body thinking, you know, what are people going to think about me? Is it safe for me to go out? You know, will I be attacked physically? Will I be spat at? One of my friends got punched on the train oh um, for doing nothing other than just sort of sitting there minding her own business. And so it was a very difficult time. And I think it did settle over the next two mm -hmm. or three years, but it definitely was a pivotal moment in the shaping of the Muslim identity and how it was discussed in public. Because until then, it felt like it was a very private matter. Like I wanted to practice being a Muslim sure. 
And the challenges that came with it were just about the people that I interacted with on a daily basis or that I walked past in the street. But suddenly, at that moment, it almost felt like someone had painted an X on the back of my scarf and I was carrying that wherever I went. A lot of um, people talk about, you know, the importance of having a professional mentor, a professional champion. Um, is there someone you worked with, whether it was a boss or just someone who was a teammate in your career that is um, that gave you some great advice that, you know, again, changed your life in a different way? I actually feel a little sad when people ask me that question because I feel like that would have been great to have somebody like that. Mm-hmm. But in a way, I feel like I've been on the front of so many boundaries and barriers that have been broken that I don't know who has been there before me. So I feel like the the sadness that I have that mm-hmm. I didn't and don't have a mentor perhaps mm-hmm. can be of value to people coming behind me, seeing that I've done it mentor. for them. You could be someone's mentor. Yeah, and I'm growing into that. I think you have. To, yeah, <laughs> it's hard to be. It's hard to be age. a mentor, isn't it? It's sort of got. It's got it's got so much responsibility. <laughs> You've got a new I generation. You, uh, I think you reach a certain point in your own life and your career where you feel like the value that you can put in the world can be amplified by having other people doing what they do best and helping them to do it. Like I certainly feel like there were a lot of barriers that I broke and a lot of conversations that I helped to open up, um, a lot of new ideas that I think I put into the public space. Mm-hmm. And actually, the experience I've gained from getting here and the confidence I have and the, the people that I know can really benefit other people. Mm-hmm. And actually, the kind of conversations that I think need to be have could happen faster and more effectively with a whole new generation of people. So actually, I'm really excited that I've reached this point in my life where actually I can get other people to start doing these innovative things. And that when I realized that, that, that was pretty exciting for me. You obviously spend a lot of time, you know, working with brands and working with um, clients who want to reach the Muslim consumer, do not know how to do it, um, have to, in some cases, you know, transform business practices or change things. Sometimes they don't even have to, and they just need to be woken up to the fact that there is a Muslim consumer. Um, what is the biggest misconception that, you know, uh, companies and businesses have about reaching this very large, very diverse group? So the first thing is the realization that there is this large audience. That's the first lack of awareness. The second one is that they actually want businesses to engage with them based on their Muslim identity because religion is something, particularly in Europe and North America, that makes everybody quite nervous. But these consumers want us to engage with them. And the third thing is to feel so nervous that they don't engage fully, aren't courageous about it, and actually don't have a sense of humor about it. Mm -hmm. So if you can tackle all of these, then actually you've got a very powerful form of engagement. How do you, um, how do you compartmentalize, um, you know, doing the stuff that you know you have to do at work and the stuff you want to do at work? Um, What's your hack or tip? I don't. It's all a big creative cloud for me. I I love everything that I do. And for me, the challenge is doing all of it. And, you know, I, I 
just kind of get through it because I love it all. And I also have this working mum thing because every minute is sort of multitasking being a mum and doing the creativity and the work so sometimes you know the baby will be in one arm and I'm kind of typing emails while she's pretending to type with me or I'm on a phone call um or you know doing some work at the weekend so I don't compartmentalize for me the idea that you're a mom in one corner and a woman in another corner and you're doing your work in a third corner is just anathema for me I love everything and I do it all the time I don't know if that's healthy but that's how it works That's Shalina Jen Mohammed, author of her memoir, Love in a Headscarf, and vice president at Ogilvy Noor. She also released another book in 2016 called Generation M, Young Muslims Changing the World. Thank you for listening, and our producer is Aditi Sangal. If you like this episode, please subscribe. We're on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Leave us a review and rate the show, or just tweet at us. I'm your host, Shereen Patek. We'll see you next week. <laughs>